This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is East of Eden, a program devoted to the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. Welcome to East of Eden, a podcast devoted to the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. As usual, I'm your host, Nick Batzig, and I am back again after a few weeks off of recording, and I'm I'm gathered together here online with Jeffrey C. Waddington, who is the teacher of the Congregation of Calvary OPC in Ringo's, New Jersey. How are you doing, Jeff? Oh, I'm doing fine. How are you, brother? Good. How's everything going at Knox OPC, where you're filling in the pulpit there? Oh, the Lord is gracious. Uh, you know, doing, I'm doing better than I deserve. Mm. And that's more than a cliche. Yep, yep. Well, we're thankful that God has you there and using you there. We are also um, pleased to have on the show, as usual, our other regular panelist, Dave Filson. Dave is a pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And Dave, it's great to have you on the show. So good to be here. And Dave, this is the first time we've been back since you finished your comps for your PhD. Tell us how you're doing. Oh, no doubt. Praise the Lord. And that went through a lot of folks' prayers and encouragement, not to mention the the able assistance of my co-panelist, Jeff Waddington, encouraging me along the way. And Mm. the guys at Westminster, the props there, were very encouraging. Um, You know, people... People think, well, I mean, it just proves what a geek I am, but I really thoroughly loved taking the written uh, comps and doing the oral comps. It was really, it was very, very exhilarating. That's great. That's great. Yeah, well, Amen. congratulations. We are very thankful. I know it's exciting for me to sit back and see you and Camden and, and Jeff knocking out your PhD work and seeing the Lord bless that. And pretty soon I'll be the only person on the reform forum without a PhD. So it's, uh, so I rejoice with you guys. Um, today we're going to be back looking at uh, another one of Jonathan Edwards sermons. And this is one that I picked. Um, I don't know if our listeners realize the process, but we generally try to pick sermons that we've been affected by, uh, Jeff, Dave, you and you and me sit down and we often talk about which mm. sermons we want to do. And this is one I happened across years ago. And it's interesting because Malachi 4.2, which is the text on which it's based, was a very influential messianic prophecy for me as a young Christian. Um, after I was converted, I realized, as the scripture says there, that the son of righteousness, the S-U-N son of righteousness, had risen um, with healing on me and redemption through Christ. And... Um, just fascinated by God giving that last great messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. And I stumbled across this sermon by Edwards called Christ, the Spiritual Son, which is based on Malachi 4.2. And also interesting because I'll preach on this this Sunday um, uh, at New Covenant, one of the Advent sermons I'm going to do this year. So um, we are looking at Edward's sermon, Christ the Spiritual Son, it was preached in 1739. And Dave, I wanted to ask you if you would again open us and, um, and walk us into the historical setting uh, of this sermon. Sure. Uh, what I want to do is just kind of look at a couple of years that the editors of the Yale edition, uh, the Yale volume uh, 22, uh, where we find this, uh, this sermon, they mentioned two particular years, obviously the year in which it was preached, uh, the month and year, May of 1739, and then when it was re-preached, most likely uh, sometime in 1746, and tell you what's going on kind of in between so that our listeners can sort of step into uh, Edward's brass-buckled shoes, as it were. Um, before 39, and I, I tend to, just historically, for some reason, when I think of Edwards and what he's doing, 1734 kind of becomes a touchstone year for me because that's where he preached his uh, justification series, which I know we want to get into in the show at some point. But that series, which in some ways lit the spark for the revival in the Connecticut Valley, uh, is in some ways the beginning of the First Great Awakening, at least uh, with regard to Edward's involvement in it. Well, three years later, 1737, uh, A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God is published. The next year, 38, Charity and Its Fruits, all revival. All of this is revival material. 1739, in the fall, The History of the Work of Redemption, 
uh, which later is you know is uh, is, is published as that it began as a series of sermons, and Edwards, of course, wanted to tease that out into a biblical theological treatise. But again, all of this is reflection on the revival, uh, reflection on what God is doing uh, in the awakening, etc. By 1740, Great Awakenings in, in full process, Whitfield visits Edwards, 41, centers in the hands of an angry God, July 8th in Enfield, Connecticut, uh, the distinguishing marks of, the, of a work of the Spirit of God uh, is, is published. Jump forward to 1746, and you have this sermon that we're looking at, which was preached originally in May of 39. Uh, its original preachment was in the right in the thick of the beginning of the awakening. Move forward to 1746, when most likely it was re-preached, this time uh, with the text Isaiah 10, 17, uh, in May of, of 1746. Well, that's the same year that a treatise concerning religious affections is published. So the point of all this is that this simple, straightforward, um, uh, you know, very, very um, picturesque sermon uh, is preached right in the context of revival writings, revival musings uh, on the part uh, on the part of Edwards. Yeah, that's very helpful. And as our listeners who have been listening to previous episodes of this program will know, we we see history of the work of redemption as an exceedingly important um, uh, epochal moment in Edwards' theology where his biblical and redemptive historical theology really shines and um, how substantial a um, a document that is, how substantial theological treaties that is. And interesting that this comes out, that this sermon is, is first preached in the spring before the fall when History of the Work um, came out, as you mentioned, Dave. And um, that's important because Edwards really opens this sermon with a redemptive historical focus, the context of this sermon. Uh, before I do look at that, Jeff, could you just walk us through the structure of the sermon sure. before we walk into the intro? Uh, okay, just a couple of things to note, and you'll, you'll build on this, Nick, I'm sure. Uh, this does follow the normal plain style Puritan uh, sermon structure of of text, doctrine, and use. Although, two things to note that are unusual. One is the introduction or the exposition, exegesis uh, section is longer than is typical, and the application or use or improvement is incredibly short. <laughs> uh, having said that. We go to the doctrine, the doctrine which is found on page 52 of volume 22 of the Yale edition of the works of Edwards says this, that same spiritual son whose beams are most comfortable and beneficial to believers will burn and destroy unbelievers. So there's the doctrine that will be expounded in the, in the sermon and he does it basically under four points and they are as follows. One, observe how that Christ is, as it were, the son of the spiritual world, to show what may be represented as the beams of this son, three, show how that the beams of this son will be most pleasant and profitable to believers, and then fourth and finally, how these same beams that are of such benign influence on believers shall burn and destroy the wicked. Now, one comment that I had made earlier when we were uh, talking about uh, this sermon was that Edwards, and I forget where he says this, but he'll talk about the uh, divine providence in general and how uh, the the sun uh, will, the same incident or the same providence uh, can make someone, we often say it is bitter or better, the sun shining, uh, on the ground will cause uh, uh, grass, green grass, to grow, and it will cause mud to harden and crack. The same one, one effect, or uh, one influence, has these dual effects, and he's doing the same thing here, except uh, applying that insight to the uh, person and work of Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's a it's a really um, simple structure, and yet one that really allows Edwards to hit a lot of different um, aspects of theology out of the passage. And um, as he opens this sermon, as I mentioned already, he, um, 
he sets it in its redemptive historical context, and that's important because this is the final messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. You know, I remember being very captivated by the last chapter of the Old Testament when I got when I was getting the whole redemptive historical structure and realizing that in Malachi four, God points Israel back to the law of Moses. He points them forward to the coming of a new Elijah, John the Baptist, who's obviously going to exist to point to Jesus. And then he tells them, those who fear my name, the S-U-N, son of righteousness, will arise with healing in his wings. And this is what, this is what Edward says about uh, the context of this prophecy. He says, Malachi being the last of the prophets who wrote a little before the ceasing of the spirit of prophecy, we have in the text some of the words with which he shut up the canon of the Old Testament. We may observe first a time prophesied of, that is the time of the gospel, here represented as the day that was approaching and the time of the sun's rising. There being no more prophets to come after Malachi to write prophecies to be added to the canon of the Old Testament, and so to increase the light of that dispensation. This prophet who writes this last book concludes it with a prediction of the coming of the great prophet and the return of the spirit of prophecy in him and the circumstances of his coming. Then he talks a little bit about John the Baptist and how he prepares the way. And then he, he mentions how John talks about Christ's coming as a refiner's fire. He says this fire is represented as the fire of a furnace that is for purifying of silver and burn as an oven. And he says this is the day, the period, or, or uh, epochal event of Christ's coming, the messenger of the covenant, or the day of the Son of Righteousness arising. And he goes on and he develops even more. It's actually a lengthy introduction for Edwards because he often doesn't do as much exposition of a text, but he goes on and he talks more about the day coming and, and what it means that the Son of Righteousness arises in redemptive history. And he says, The light of the prophets that were as it were the stars of that night went out sometime before the sun arose, and Malachi being the last of those stars that we have any account of, the life of, when he was about to withdraw his shinings, soon after which there was to shine no more stars, he comforts the church under this cessation of their former small twinkling lights and foretelling the approach of the day of the Son of Righteousness. And so he really talks about that 400 years of silence that Malachi is about to walk Israel into and how there's not going to be any more prophetic voices. And I love how he contrasts Christ as the sun with all the Old Testament prophets he calls stars. You almost get that. 1 Corinthians 15, one star differing in glory from another, and they're all like little stars, and Jesus is the big sun star of stars um, from our perspective. And um, so it's a very fascinating, very fascinating prophecy and context. And um, any other thoughts on that before we, we look further in the sermon? Just that, uh, you know, it's, it's an example, you know, once again of, of Edward's penchant for using, you know, uh, images in nature for you know analogies to divine things and uh, doing that with a very exegetical biblical theological you know basis uh, there uh, no no one can ever discount I don't think and and be fair to Edwards uh, his knowledge of of scripture hmm. and to and to take something that you might jump into Malachi and and say yeah Malachi is the last of the prophets and, and get on with the sermon but for him to tease out with with convincing imagery like that, with you know the stars, etc., light and darkness, etc., uh, setting you up for that 400-year uh, intertestamental period, it, I, it's just remarkable. I think it is. And you know, we interviewed Sean Lucas not long ago, and and one of the chapters in his book, God's Grand Design, he deals with how Edwards was really a master of looking out in general revelation and finding these, you know, we could call them types in the natural world for the spiritual realities that we have in Christ. And, um, and I think, I always, I always think when he does that, when I read Edwards, because, you know, Sean is, is so dead on with that. And when I see Edwards doing that in various plays, I mean, he does it all over the place actually, but I had to think he is in many ways exegeting his congregation, um, as it were, because you know, they're in an agrarian society by and large, and, and they're thinking in terms of these very, uh, you know, general revelation, created order right outside the church windows, you know, 
trees and grass and fields and harvests and mm. the sky and it's dark at night. You know, they, they don't have electricity. So darkness is going to be more, uh, more, I think, pertinent to their understanding of reality than even it is to us. Obviously, they had, they had oil, they had candles, etc. But I wonder if we really grasp the contrast between light and darkness is the way they would have in, in their society, in their time. And just the way that Edwards is appealing in that agrarian society to things that would be uh, have been immediately um, impressionable for them. Yeah, I, you really see that in this sermon, as we'll touch on throughout, how he talks about the natural sun and all the benefits the natural sun has on the natural world. And I couldn't help thinking about Edwards at 13, I think, right, when he's looking at, is it the jumping spider or the flying spider? I forget which one he was the first to observe, and didn't he write a dissertation on that, Jeff? Do you know? He did, the flying spider. Yeah, and just how captivated he was with the glory of God's world and all that God had created. And, you know, it's also interesting because Edwards could be suspect to an inappropriate allegorizing or spiritualizing, and there are people who criticize him for that with these, with these things. But, you know, Malachi 4.2 gives us a definitive analogy between the created world and the spiritual world and using that as an analogy that the sun is the only source of light for us and it shines light on everything in this world and it enables us to see God's glory and it exposes and it's the only source of, of light and Christ is the only source of righteousness. He is the son of righteousness and that his righteousness exposes sin and it also provides righteousness and healing spiritually for his people. And um, I also couldn't help but think, because Malachi does what he does in Malachi 4.2, I wonder if we can't do the same with Psalm 19, where it says, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, the earth shows forth his handiwork, and it says, in them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. And I remember as a young Christian thinking, the only other time in the scriptures anyone is likened to a bridegroom, it's Jesus. Mm-hmm. And here the sun in Psalm 19, the literal S-U-N, the, the physical sun, is likened to a bridegroom. And so I think putting Psalm 19 together, Malachi 4.2, it actually bolsters what Edwards does so well when he looks out into creation, as you say, Dave, and how much more in tune his congregation would have been to that. And, and I wonder how, with all of our technology and electricity and how much we're bound to our offices and our houses and we're not reading the book of creation like our forefathers did, that we lose something of that. Right. And i got to say, Nick, I'm very impressed with what you just did there, the connections you just made, yeah. the bridegroom, the son. That, that was well played, my friend. Well, and I'm not sure it's legitimate. I just I remember oh, I, thinking I think it's it, the only time it's called, he's called the you know the bridegroom is Christ and the son is called right. a bridegroom. So I, I think I think you've actually hit on something there, brother. That that uh, I have to remember that if I ever preach on that passage. But what we've demonstrated, what's already been said, is many people are struck by the unique nature of Edward's understanding of typology. Mm. Uh, Clearly, he has the, the traditional notion of Old Testament uh, persons, events, and institutions that foreshadow Christ and the gospel. But he will also take that uh, foreshadowing, if you will, uh, and as we've already said, he applies that to nature and history. Mm. Uh, and, you know, some might say, well, you know, he's a good, you know, he's, he's uh, foreshadowing uh, reader response theory. Well, that's not at all what he's doing. He believes that God intentionally has created the sun, S-U-N, in the sky Mm. to be a type of the sun, S-O-N, Jesus Christ. That's divinely uh, ordained and instituted so that when the believer, now this this is not something that the unbeliever can see, uh, but so when the believer contemplates the sun, S-U-N, he or she will think of, Jesus Christ, S-O-N. That's right. That's right. And you know, Jeff, I remember as a young Christian, when after I'd been enlightened by the Spirit, um, after I'd been regenerate, that I remember looking at trees, and I would think about the wonder that God had created trees. But then as I got the gospel more, and as I understood the language of cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, and um, Peter said, you know, he bore our sins in his own body on a tree, 
um, it hit me. God created trees so that Jesus Christ could hang on one and redeem us. Now, somebody can say you're reading too much into post-fall after creation, but everything's plan A. I mean, there's no plan B. So obviously what you just said, we have to draw that conclusion. Well, I think so. I don't think there's any way to separate, Nick, what you're saying there. From them. Somebody can say, well, that, you're reading too much post-fall back into the idea of a tree. But if you think about the fact that pre-fall, trees figure pretty prominently, the tree of knowledge mm. and the tree of life. And the only right. way to make up for what happened at the tree of knowledge of good and evil and get back to the tree of life is via the accursed tree. Yeah. So in some ways, the Bible is a tale of three trees. And so I don't think to look at trees yeah. and, and see that redemptive uh, analogy there is reading too much back into anything. I think it was there from the beginning. I, know. Oh, I, I agree. Remember, creation is, for Edwards, for redemption. In other words, mm. redemption is the whole point of creation. Mm. Uh, also good, brothers, note, note how Edwards here uh, jives quite well with, um, jives quite well with uh, Cornelius Van Til's understanding of true knowledge. True knowledge is looking at any one thing and understanding how it relates to God and his plan. That's right. Right? I mean, right. and that's, that's a big element in Van Til's understanding of the living in God's world. Mm-hmm. Edwards and Van Til, years apart, yet they understand the basic nature of the world in which we live. And the general and special revelation go together. That was yeah. Van Til's big point in um, Nature and Scripture in the Correct. back of the Infallible Word where, you know, and that blew me away when he said... Um, you know, Adam needed special revelation with regard to the tree, which was general revelation, so that God said, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there you have special and general coming together, and Satan right. came in, and Satan's goal was to separate that, and to say, Adam, you can interpret creation on your own, apart from God's word, God's specially right. revealed word, and so I think all of that is undergirding the sermon. Um, yeah, as, and then, uh, Satan, if you think about it there, Nick, if I can chime in, Satan was in many ways the first naturalist, as it were. He, he, he was, you know, I mean, Cornelius Van Til's epistemology is this, you know, clarion call to supernaturalism as opposed to a Darwinian uh, naturalism. And if both special and general revelation, as Van Til would say, uh, God's revelation of himself is his interpretation of his own knowledge, then whether we are looking at either general or special revelation, um, when we see redemptive analogies there, it's because that's part of the warp and woof of it. It's not something that we are stretching to make a point. It's part of the warp and woof of it from, from the very outset. Amen. Yeah, that's great. Now, when Edwards opens this sermon um, after the introduction, and he talks about uh, how Christ is, as it were, he says, the, the son of the spiritual world, he does two things. First, he says Christ is, as it were, the son of the spiritual world, um, with regard to his person, and then he says, and the glory of his person, he is the brightness of God's glory, Hebrews 1.3. And then he says, number two under that, that Christ is the spiritual son um, by virtue of his saving work and influence. So really, person and work of Christ structuring that. And I thought that was really helpful, that we don't want to just talk about the glory of Jesus and his person, and we don't want to just talk about the benefits of Jesus and redemption, both comprise Christ as the spiritual son of his people. And, um, you know, it's pretty easy in one, uh, one level to talk about Christ as a son. I mean, Matthew tells us his face shone like the sun on the Mount of Transfiguration, and John tells us almost the same thing in Revelation 1, the glorified Christ, his, his face. The only, thing, the only thing that they could liken it to was the sun because it's the brightest. Um, Edward, somewhere else, I think it's under um, uh, his notes on Scripture on Second Peter one, wherever Peter says uh, is reflecting back in the Transfiguration. We heard his voice when we were with him on the holy mountain, and we saw the cloud of glory. and And Edwards has a um, really rich exposition there, where he says um, when John and Matthew talk about Christ's face shining like the sun that that's the only thing they can find in creation to even liken it to, and that it would have been much brighter than that and much greater than that. Um, so I found that to be really helpful that, that, you know, Malachi here is reaching for the most glorious and the most radiant thing to describe Christ's person. Mm-hmm. Thoughts? Yeah, well, it reminds me, you know, of when 
think it's in Luke's account. He talks about the transfiguration. And he talks about uh, doesn't he say? Doesn't he speak of the, the the clothing of Jesus or Jesus? You know, shining like lightning, even you know. And so he's he's reaching for this kind of just extreme example of brightness of of um, of magnificence. Yeah, yeah, that's really great. And um, as Edwards develops this, and he he talks about the benefits, and the majority of the sermon really is taken up with the benefits that we have in Christ, and and that really an exposition of. Uh, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. And Edward says here, under the second, the second head, under his um, first point, he says that we may understand by the beams of the spiritual sun or its wings, which is an, a Hebraism, as expressed in the text, that this is manifested by his influences. And then he starts to break down how the sun has these healing influences on people. He says the beams of the sun are those by which the sun is manifested. The sun appears to us or is seen by us no otherwise than by its rays or the beams of its light that it sends forth. All other things here on the face of the earth are seen or discovered by the light or beams of the sun, but the sun is discovered only by its own light. The rays of the sun's light shining to our eyes are those by which the sun's glory is manifested and made to appear to us. And you can see Edward's already setting this up in... Uh, by way of analogy of the sun's beams to the revelation of Christ to us or the communication of the Lord Jesus to us. Um, And Jeff, you had talked earlier when we were getting ready for this interview about um, how Edwards uses the healing idea of the sun in the natural world. Did you want to develop that some for us? Uh, yes, and also no. He he does refer to to not only the beams of the sun, but also the the protection of wings. Right, uh, that's a theme, of course, that comes up in the Psalms, uh, and also in the Book of Ruth. Remember how uh, Ruth has come under the uh, protection of the shadow of the wings of God. But uh, some of the ways in which Edwards will spell out the uh, influences of the beams of the sun both S-U-N and S-O-N, and he does this in four ways, but the first one are his uh, word in ordinance. And hear what he says. I'm going to read these paragraphs. The glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is, as it were, the rays or beams of the light of the Son of Righteousness. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So the word of God is called a light, Psalm 119.105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light. Verse 130, the entrance of thy words giveth light. In Proverbs 6.23, the commandment is a lamp. The gospel is the light by which the Son of Righteousness enlightened the world long after the long night of darkness that was there before Christ came. The words that Christ spoke and the particular passages of Scripture by which he is revealed are so many bright beams proceeding forth from the Son of Righteousness. The gospel is the main instrument by which the influences of this Son are derived on the hearts of men. So also the ordinances of the gospel are beams as beams by which Christ is made known and by which he influences men's hearts. The same things are exhibited in the sacraments of the gospel in another manner as are held forth in the word. By these Christ gives us instruction, and by these he carries on his work as well as by his word. And therefore, these also are his beams from the sun. Now, why I uh, <clears throat> mentioned that is that some uh, are critical of Edwards thinking that his defense of the Great Awakening... Uh, his emphasis upon the immediate activity of the Holy Spirit uh, undermines uh, his commitment to what we would call the ordinary means of grace, uh, and specifically means of grace such as the Word, uh, prayer, and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And right here in this passage, we see that that's exactly not the case, that in his uh, exposition of how uh, the Son of Righteousness is of benefit to the the believer. He, he says one of the rays of the sun, uh, or the rays of the sun include the word 
and the ordinances or, or sacraments. And they're beneficial to, to the believer. That's pretty clear. Yeah, two things struck me in this section, Jeff. The first was what you just pointed out, that this sermon could have very easily been taken in a mystical sense. You can almost see like a, um, and I do love his commentary on the Song of Songs, but you can almost see a Bernard of Clairvaux or, um, you know, even modern Catholic mystics taking this in sort of a mystical sense of just, you know, uh, some kind of detachment from the, uh, a diligent use of the means of grace and, and just a, uh, you know, almost a Keswick higher life appropriation of the beams of Christ. And yet Edwards doesn't do that. He emphasizes that part of his communicating himself to us, and the large part of it, is um, his word and his sacraments. And I love the way he tied in there, as you read, um, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. The entrance of your words give light. And there he's he's actually exegetically reaching for um, a defense of the beams of the S-U-N of righteousness, being the word. And I also thought it was interesting. I don't know what you guys think about this, but you know, it's actually possible to focus on the ordinances, the word and prayer and the sacraments and to do it in a biblically unfaithful way in the sense that interpretation matters. And I thought it was very interesting that Edward says the gospel is the light by which the Son of Righteousness enlightened the world. He doesn't say anything about the law of God in God's commands to us, as important as God's law is. And the sacraments themselves are focusing on the person and the finished work of Jesus in redemption, and that Edwards is here preeminently gospel-centered, and that what he's saying is that redemption is the beams of light from the Son. Any thoughts on that? Well, notice what Edwards does in points two through four. Uh, they're actually a continuation. Uh, point two uh, is that the Spirit is the means of the effectiveness of the ordinances and the Word. The Spirit of Christ is the messenger he sends forth by which the Word and the ordinances are made effectually to enlighten, enliven, and quicken men's heart. And therefore these communication and influences of the Spirit are, as it were, beams put forth from that. So Edwards is going to say what he's saying there is that the is that the um the ordinances, that is the sacraments, aren't effective apart from the Holy Spirit. And then of course he goes on in his third point, all the exercises of Christ's power whatsoever may be called his beams, that by which the Son has power and by which it produces all his great and powerful effects are its beams or rays, by these it warms, by these it cherishes, and by these it dries, scorches, and burns. So he's, he's going back to that idea that the beams of the sun have two effects, positive on the elect, negative on the uh, reprobate. So all these exercises and emanations of Christ's omnipotence are, as it were, the emissions of his beams, not only those effects of his power, that are the influences of the Spirit on men's heart, but all other exertions of his power whatsoever. And then he moves in that final uh, fourth point, all manifestations of his attributes whatsoever, not only those that are made by his word, but all appearances of his attributes in his works of creation and providence. That is nature and history. Okay, so in Scripture and in nature and in history, uh, we see the beams of the sun at work. And so he ties, uh, and then he goes on and he says, and also those appearances of his majesty and glory, which will be made immediately hereafter without any use of God's words, ordinances. Now what he means there, he's talking about the coming of Christ at the second coming. These displays, that that which will be made, of the majesty of Christ and awful glory of Christ to the bodily eyes of both the good and the bad at the day of judgment, these may be properly represented as the beams of the light or brightness of the sun of righteousness. These are the shining forth of his glory as the glory of the sun shines forth in his rays. Yeah, that's really helpful because you really do see Edward safeguarding against a uh, a trusting in the means, as it were. And, you know, the Puritans would often guard against that. And I know um, William T. Link in his um, book, he was a, a, 
uh, not a Reformatsi, Dutch Puritan, Second Reformation guy, uh, talked a lot about um, not trusting in the means, diligent use of the means, but it's the Holy Spirit who has to be at work in the heart. And um, really thankful that Edwards both hits on both of those, need for the word and the ordinances in the communication of Christ, but that the Holy Spirit is the one who comes from Christ. And you really do see that analogy, don't you? I mean, Jesus says, Mm -hmm. you know, it's better that I go away because if I go away, I'll send the Holy Spirit to you. It's the sending of the beams of his grace and glory and how Edward says there, and you read this, Jeff, already, but how he talks about um, Christ not receiving the Spirit by measure, but just as the sun's light and heat of its own fullness from which the world receives, so the Holy Spirit comes from Christ who did not receive him by measure and is his fullness of which the spiritual world receives and partakes. So I thought that was an amazing um, development in this sermon. And, and you know, it also, it also serves to show that we have to be careful not to be so Christocentric that we're Christomonic. And I know that's a, right. a charge that can be abused against guys that are Christ-centered by guys who are not. But there is a sense where Edwards is really, again, Trinitarian here, isn't it? Yes, very He's much. very Trinitarian. So. And I think if we're going to be fair to Edwards, you know, if we're going to enjoy uh, Warfield speaking of Calvin, for instance, as primarily a theologian of, uh, of the Holy Spirit, I think we would be giving short shrift to Edwards if we did not acknowledge a rather fully orb pneumatology in his sermons, in his treatises. Edwards was um, a pneumatological theologian. Ooh, that's a big word. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. <laughs> it was certainly Trinitarian. I mean, clearly, yeah. but such an emphasis on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And I wonder sometimes if maybe uh, we we might um, not acknowledge that with regard to Edwards as we should. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's, especially with a show like this where we are so focused on Edwards' um, redemptive history with regard to Jesus Christ, but the Spirit comes in redemptive history, and he applies Christ, and he unites us to Christ, and he, you know, makes us partakers of those, um, the fruit of the Spirit, the communicable attributes of God and, um, and of Christ, and so... Really thankful for Edward's focus on that. There's really two sections left in the sermon. We don't have a lot of time to look at both of them, so I wanted to just highlight a few things out of the section where Edwards now develops how the believer benefits, and he has a fairly um, substantive section there about all the benefits of the healing that we get from the Son. And this is where Edwards also goes back to general revelation, and he'll talk about the Son in the different seasons. And I really liked how he did this. He said, How comfortable and pleasant is the warmth of the Son when he returns after a cold winter. So, and much more comfortable to a believing soul, are the warm beams of the Son of Righteousness. And then he says, How does the face of the earth seem to rejoice when the sun comes to shine pleasantly upon it in the spring? The pastures are clothed with green grass and many pleasant flowers that open their bosom to receive the sunbeams. How are the trees, as it were, clothed with garments of rejoicing with green leaves and beautiful and fragrant blossoms, as though they sang and shouted for joy at the influence of the sun? Quote Psalm sixty five thirteen the pastures are clothed with flocks, the valleys also. And then he talks about how that's a, an image of the spiritual comfort, joy, and excellent refreshment that the soul of the believer gets from the Son of Righteousness in the spiritual world. And then one other thing I wanted to highlight, I loved how he did this, and I know some people may say this is an in- inappropriate, you know, um, uh, analogy, I guess you would call it. He says, the beams of this sun heal of the mortal poison of the fiery serpent as the children of Israel were healed by looking to the brazen serpent in the wilderness. I love that. That was probably my favorite line in the sermon. Yeah. I underlined it. And even the, the next sentence after that, yea, these beams don't only restore from wounds, but from death. They don't only give light, but life. Oh, yeah. Mm. That's probably my favorite two sentences in the whole sermon. I loved it. Yeah, it's beautiful, and he develops that some, too. Um, I want to encourage our listeners, because we don't have time to really deal with all the nuances of this section, but read diligently the section on how the soul of believers is, is healed 
uh, the soul believer of a believer is healed by the beams of the light of Jesus Christ. What I did want to focus on, and Jeff, maybe you could just kind of walk us out of our consideration sure. of this by talking about how this is not just a comforting sermon, that the context of Malachi actually um, has a twofold response um, response read and um, response consequence to uh, the news of the Son of Righteousness. Uh, yes, yeah, just as he has uh, five points or sub-points with regard to how Christ, the beams of the sun, uh, the influence of Christ is beneficial for the believer. He also has five sub-points about how uh, the rays of the sun or the beams of the sun are not beneficial uh, but uh, problematic for the unbeliever. And, and we'll just go through these as quickly. Uh, first, as Christ's coming into the world to save sinners will be only an occasion of their greater uh, misery. Now we're talking about the unbelieving. Christ's coming into the world to save sinners is by the prophet Malachi represented as the beginning of the day and rising of the sun. In that work which he wrought in the world in order to the redemption of sinners, of course, that also means the punishment of unbelievers. Second, uh, their enjoyments of the gospel and means of grace will turn to their greater and more terrible destruction. In other words, what he's saying is the unbeliever, while he or she rejects Christ, uh, may still benefit from the um, ministrations of the gospel. And that benefit, what we might sometimes put under the category of common grace or the influence of the gospel in the world, the spillover, if you will, I think that would almost be the language of a John Murray. Uh, the effects of the, of the gospel in a fallen world, uh, there are some temporal benefits. And what Edwards is saying is those temporal benefits, the influence of the gospel means, and the means of grace, will actually uh, add to the, um, the unbeliever's uh, punishment and in, in judgment. Uh, yeah, and there's a pretty stark juxtaposition there, isn't there, Jeff? In that section, I mean, like he could not be plainer than this. The gospel, which is the vehicle of salvation to believers, is the vehicle of wrath and the savor of death to unbelievers, 2 Corinthians two fifteen sixteen. 16. Then he says, the gospel does but harden the hearts of those that continue in unbelief. The gospel hardens the hearts of those that continue in unbelief. I mean, that's pretty... Start. Well, I was just going to say, m many of us are familiar with, and maybe even in our own lives prior to our conversion, uh, have sat under the ministry of the gospel and become what we call gospel-hardened. Mm -hmm. In other words, we take it for granted and we say, oh, you know, uh, someday after I've sowed my wild oats, uh, I'll, I'll believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but let me have my fun now. And of course, Paul tells us in Romans that now is the day of salvation. Not later. Yeah. And we, we're not guaranteed a later. Yeah. Right? And this is one of the most sobering sections that I've read in Edwards. I have to admit, I read it and it was, there was almost a frightening aspect when he talks about um, those who were hypocrites, who had professed faith in Christ, who may have had some kind of external, you know, manifestation of the Spirit's healing on them kind of that Hebrew six, you know, the influences of the spirit and that in hell they would look back and that they would remember the gospel that they heard and they would remember the pleadings to come to Christ that they rejected all the while acting, you know, as though they had the healing grace of Jesus Christ and that for eternity they would have to reflect on that while they were in torments. And it's, it's so sobering because, you know, it's almost a place you don't want to go. It's almost, right. even as a minister of the gospel, I have to say, it's almost a place I don't want to go in my thinking to think about men and women in hell forever thinking back on the healing mercy of the Son of Righteousness that they rejected while playing the part. Um, but do you understand, different. yeah, do you understand, though, the, the benefit of Edwards dwelling on this is because, and I think Van Til talked this way, if a person is running headlong off a cliff... The act of love is not to say, keep running, oh, my yeah. friend, but yeah. the act of love is to say, hold it, you're headed toward a cliff. And when you get to the cliff, you know, like Wiley e. Coyote discovered in the Roadrunner, 
the cliff ends and you fall. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt it needs to be taught and said. It's just, uh, it's a sobering. It's, it is uncomfortable. I yeah, mean, it's and a I don't sobering. Think we, I don't think we want to be comfortable with it. That's the whole point. Right. Is that it yeah. is. A, and I, I think we're, we make a mistake if we think that Edwards was happy or comfortable with this. Uh, because I think maybe he's, he's, in, he's more sensitive to the seriousness of the problem. Perhaps we in, in, in our day have become desensitized to, to the seriousness of the fate of the unbelieving masses. And if we were more sensitive to this, I suppose we would be more uh, quickly, would, would share the gospel with all those we come in contact. And I'm condemned, uh, I condemn myself when I say this. Right. Uh, we can find all sorts of reason to, to not share the gospel or to say, well, let's not go there. Let's not go down that road. Well, we have to, we have to put up signs, warning sure. signs that say, if you continue down this road, you are going to destruction. Now, oh, absolutely. They're going to laugh at us. They're going to laugh it off. You know, they're going. They're they're thinking. You know, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Yeah, sure. And Edwards it's even a holy un, unnervedness when it comes to the gospel. Um, we 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 talk about the sweetness of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, the comforts of the gospel, and Edwards has talked about that early in this sermon. But I got to tell you all right now, just reading that those couple of lines and here our ensuing discussion. Um, I'm feeling a little unnerved by this gospel that can harden hearts. Oh, yeah. yeah. Feeling unnerved by my own presumptuousness with regard to the gospel in my own life and in the lives of others. And I think uh, being in a place of, of holy unnervedness, it would be, um, would be the better part of wisdom for us at times. Yeah, and Edwards ends this sermon with this very brief application, it seems, because there's an appendix to it that perhaps he had written more than what the published sermon actually has to it. He said, let, let this put persons upon examining themselves whether or not they are unbelievers. Though you have a standing in God's vineyard, yet are you not barren? Then if so, consider what Christ did to the barren fig tree. Think they are the withering of the sun the sun withering the fig tree. Are you not rooted in stony ground? Are you not dry and dead plants? And then he goes on, and this is in the appendix. Have you been made sensible of your own blindness? Have you seen the glory of this light that is sh shined into your heart? Has it had a transforming influence upon you? Has it given you new life? Do you love this light? Do you delight in the beams? That is the word and spirit. Do you walk as a child of light? Take thorough and effectual care that you may, may not be found among the wicked, but the righteous, that God may be a light to enliven and not a fire to consume you. Earnestly seek to get in a converted state. I mean, this is, as with, Ed, Edwards was an evangelist. I mean, I think, yes. I think that's one of the greatness, greatnesses of Edwards as we've gone through these sermons. And you know, that whole debate over whether we preach the gospel evangelistically in the visible church. Um, of course we do. I mean, this is why we do it. Um, we need these questions. You know, every, every professing yeah. believer and every minister needs these questions. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Now, this is, this is a, uh, when we talk about preaching the gospel in the church, of course, we, and evangelistically, we have to, because one, we don't know that the actual spiritual state of every last person who's in the church and of course we also have visitors who come on occasion and we don't know their spiritual state no, uh, but also this is good for the believer for the one who is along the way uh, in the christian life to be reminded of the basics is not a bad thing mm. right to be reminded i mean repetition is a is actually a factor of good teaching. It's a repetition is a factor of good preaching, and it is in fact apostolically founded. Oh yeah, there is a precedent for repetition that is going back. Now we don't spend all our time on the basics. That's one of the criticisms, as we remember from the Book of Hebrews, right? You know, I you wish that you were mature, but you're not. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's clear that Edwards was an evangelistic preacher. If anybody ever thought that being a Calvinist prevented you from being a, an evangelist, this, this surely proves the point is just the opposite. Before we do close out our time together, I wanted to say I kind of thought about this prophecy and I, I thought about what Edwards said and I wondered how could we even develop this out more in a biblical theological way and, you know, with, with uh, you know, Advent and Christmas 
in front of us here this year, um, really thinking about the birth narratives a lot and how, you know, there's a star leading the wise men to the place where the sun of righteousness is rising in the manger and how Jesus himself said to Naphtali, um, to, to the cities that sat in darkness, upon you a great light has shone. And, you know, you find these themes, Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. And, um, and then ultimately at the cross, where the sun of righteousness is shining in his fullest strength, the physical sun is darkened. You almost mm. have that gospel right. contrast when wow. the curse falls wow. on him. So you can right. just keep taking this out and taking this out and taking this out. And I think that, I think all of that is, is intended in a canonical sense. I, I agree. Now you can take let one more before we close out. Yeah. And that is to think about the dual response to the babe in the manger. We get the shepherds and the, the, the magi and the angels uh, worshiping the Christ child. And then we have Herod who absolutely hates the Christ child. The same baby, the same birth, yielding two responses, which is what, of course, Edwards deals with in this sermon in Malachi. Yeah, but amen and praise God that the light has shone, as Mm. John says, uh, but the darkness of the efforts of a Herod or the darkness of my own heart uh, has not and cannot and will not ever overcome uh, the light that uh, that shone with Christ's coming. Well, we are we are so thankful that um, you all have tuned in to listen again to us consider another one of Jonathan Edwards' sermons, and we hope that you've benefited from it. You can find Dave online at teachinglikerain.wordpress.com. You can also find some of his sermons at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Jeff is on the web at feedingonchrist.com. He's also um, on many of the shows of the Reform Forum, and you can find some of his sermons at Calvary dash amwell.org uh, Calvary OPC there in Ringo's New Jersey and uh, we hope that you'll tune in again for another episode of Feast of Eden the Biblical and Systematic Theology of Jonathan Edwards thanks <laughs>